might be opening your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Just a moment, we're going to begin reading in John chapter 8 and verse 2. Prior to that, however, I'd like to invite you to pray with me the prayer that we pray as we study this wonderful theme of God's grace. Let's pray together. Dear God of all grace, please grant us the grace to receive your grace and grant us the grace to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Early the next morning, Jesus was back at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and Pharisees brought a woman they had caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? The voices yanked this lady from her slumber. Get out of bed, you harlot. Get out of bed, you hussy. What kind of woman are you anyway? She was caught in the act of adultery. Caught like a mouse in a trap, like a rabbit in a cage. Caught in the act, in the arms in the passion, in the room, in the moment, caught in the very act they boasted, they being the religious leaders, the preachers, the priests, the seminary professors, they being the Jerusalem pastor's council, slammed the door on its hinges and yanked the curtain back. Before she knew the warmth of the morn, she felt the heat of their scorn. And they yanked her out of bed. Shame on you. Shame on you. Pathetic. Disgusting. She scarcely had time to pull clothing over her body until they had drug her out into the narrow streets. And with one man on one elbow, another on the other, they walked her toward the temple courts. Women stuck their head out of their windows and stepped back. Children stepped out. Their mothers yanked them back. Merchants who were just opening up their stores turned to stare. And Jerusalem became a jury and rendered a verdict with crossed arms and angry glares. Guilty. And as if the bedroom raid wasn't enough, as if the parade of shame was inadequate, as if the, the gauntlet of guilt was insufficient. Look where they took her. They took her to a morning Bible study, an early morning Bible study where Jesus was speaking, and they thrust her into the center of the circle and had her stand in front of everybody. She lifted her head just long enough to see who was around her. Some were students, innocently present, wanting nothing more than to hear what Jesus had to say. Others were guardians of truth, self-appointed. 
there to trap Jesus. In fact, that's what John says. They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him. So some of the group has their questions. The other group has their convictions. And she, she had nothing but her, her negligee and her, her smeared lipstick. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. And the law of Moses says to stone her. And what do you say? But for the first time all morning, there's silence. No one speaks. The accusers hold their tongues. The students hold their questions. Not even Jesus speaks. Jesus doesn't speak, but he does act. He stoops. Verse 6. He stooped down. He stooped down. And he wrote in the dust. Jesus was already sitting. You may have noticed this in, in verse 2. When the crowd gathered, he sat down. He sat down and he taught them. So we know he was sitting. There's a storyline in the sitting and the standing and the stooping of Jesus in John chapter 8. Because the story begins with Jesus sitting He's already as low as anybody in the circle. But he, before he stands, he stoops. Wouldn't we expect him to stand first? Wouldn't we expect him, when asked the question, wouldn't we expect his first act to be to stand up? To lift up his shoulders, to lift up his head, maybe even to step up on a, on a step and speak. But he doesn't. Instead, the first act of Christ is not to go up but down. And he stoops. He goes lower. He's already sitting as low as anybody. But before he's finished, he is the lowest person in the gathering. No one is lower than he. He's lower than the students. He's lower than the accusers. He's lower than the women. They already look down on the woman. But to see Jesus, they have to look down even further to see him. Jesus. He's prone to stoop. He stooped to wash the disciples' feet. He stooped to receive the children. He stooped to receive the lash of the Roman whip. He stooped to pick up the Roman cross. And here he stoops. In the Old Testament, the word for grace comes from the word family that is the word stoop. Grace first stoops. It bends. It lowers. And we wonder if Jesus isn't placing himself in a place where grace is dispensed. He stoops. And then he draws in the dirt. We'll always wonder what he drew, won't we? What did he draw in the dirt? Do you remember the first time the hands of God touched dirt? The result was Adam. God scooped up the soil and made the first human being. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus, the creator, didn't need a creation reminder that all these finger-pointing, Backbiting people come from dirt. They come from dirt. They're just... He remembers that we are but dust. Or maybe he wasn't doing it for his sake. Maybe he was doing it for her sake. Because there she is, scantily clad, encircled probably by more men than women, no doubt. Who are looking more at her 
than at Jesus. So Jesus maybe diverts their attention by lowering himself down. I don't know why, but I do know that the posse grew impatient. They kept demanding an answer, so he, look what he did. He stood up. He stood up. And the stooping Jesus became the standing Christ. He lifts himself erect till his shoulders are back and his head is up. And he's straight and tall. Now why does he stand? Does he stand to deliver a sermon? If he does, it's awfully brief. Does he stand to speak to the, uh, to the students? No, he doesn't address them. Does he stand for long? No, because he's going to stoop down here in just a moment. It seems to me the only reason he stands is because nobody else has stood up on behalf of the woman. He stands up on behalf of the hussy. And he places himself in between her and her accusers. They with their stones and accusations. Her with her embarrassment. He places himself in between her and them. So that they can't get to her without going through him. And he says, all right. Stoner. But let those who have never sinned throw the first stones. Look what he does. Then he, you want to help me? Stooped. He stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. Once again, silence, once again, stooping, once again, writing in the dust. And no one speaks. It only took one question. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. One question from Jesus, and the accusers turn away. But Jesus isn't finished. He has one more question, and guess what he does? He rises to ask it. He stands up again. Then Jesus stood up again, and he said to her, where are your accusers? My, 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 what a question. Where are your accusers? As she is formulating her answer, would you mind formulating yours? You know, voices accuse you, don't they? Voices from your past. Voices from your mistakes. Voices of Criticism, voices of condemnation, voices, voices in which you hear the reminders of your mistakes. We caught you in the very act, and you fill in the blank, the act of adultery, immorality, dishonesty, stupidity, irresponsibility, foolishness. You were caught in the act, and as a result, you aren't good enough. Shame on you disgusting you are too fat ugly silly irresponsible the voices in our world and the voices in our heads these voices in our heads it's as if there is a more a moral policeman who patrols our thoughts who passes out citations dozens a day 
caught you again, caught you again, you've been caught. And they stack up these voices, sometimes from our parents, sometimes from our professors, sometimes from our own thoughts. And I wonder, do these voices ever shut up? No, they don't. Because Satan never shuts up. And this is what he does for a living. He accuses you. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is also John the Revelator, who wrote the book of Revelation. In this, John is able to, by God's grace, see the demise of Satan and the downfall. And in the book of Revelation, he says, the great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to earth with all his angels. I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has happened at last. The salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser has been thrown down to earth. The one who accused our brothers and sisters before our God day and night. The accuser, Satan, makes a career out of accusing. He encircles you. He holds stones in his hands. And he reminds God, we caught her, we caught him accusing you, calling you names, hypocrite, cheat. All those names you hear in your own head. You've heard those names. You've heard Satan. But I'm wondering, have you heard Christ? Because even though voices accuse you, do you know that Christ protects you? Christ protects you. What he did for the woman in Jerusalem, he does for you. Didn't he stoop for you? Didn't he stoop low enough to be born in a manger? Didn't he stoop low enough to work in a carpentry shop? Didn't he stoop low enough to, to be on earth in relative anonymity for three decades in a map dot of a town on the fringe of the Roman Empire? Look how far he stooped. Did he not stoop far enough? To be caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee? To be caught with a bunch of hungry disciples? And did he not stoop low enough where people would unfairly and falsely criticize him and blame him for things he didn't do? Look how far he stooped. Did he not stoop far enough that all of the sins of all of the world would be placed upon him and he would die a death on a cross that was not his death? Look how far he stooped. Did he not stoop? But after he stooped, what did he do? stood, stood, right there in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, right there in the tomb from the slab of death, he stood, he stood taller and taller until he was absolutely erect and his head was held high and the stone was rolled back and he looked right into the face, right into the face of Satan, the accuser. And he placed himself between you and your accuser as if the accuser would have to get through him to get to you. And he placed himself in a permanent and eternal position as your defendant, your strong tower, your intercessor. He always lives to make intercession for you. Right now in heaven, he stands on your behalf. He stood just as Jesus stood on behalf of the woman. Christ stands on behalf of you. But listen... Christ has done more for you than he did for the woman. 
He stood beside her. He lives inside you. He stood beside her, but he lives inside you. This has been the desire of God since the beginning of time to move inside a population of people and so live within them that he is living through them. As far back as the prophets, he was talking about this. In the book of Ezekiel, he said, Then I will spring, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. This is the accomplishment of God, that he puts a new heart in you, friend. Nothing short of a heart transplant. He removes the old heart, deceitful as it is, poisoned and pained with all of life's struggles. He removes the old heart and he places within you the heart of Jesus Christ. This means that right now when heaven hears your heart, heaven hears the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. No one could understand this more than Tara and Todd Storch. In the spring of 2010, their 13-year-old daughter, Taylor, was killed in a snow skiing accident. What followed was every parent's worst nightmare. Funeral, burial, decisions, a torrent of tears and questions. They chose to donate all of her organs to needy patients. And no one needed a heart more than Patricia Winters. Her heart had been in a state of decline for five years, leaving her unable to do much more than sleep. When Taylor's 13-year-old heart was placed in Patricia's body, Patricia was given a new start. Through a series of events, Tara, the mother, and Todd, the father, were given an opportunity to meet Patricia, the patient. And when Tara and Todd had the opportunity, they took it because they wanted to hear their daughter's heartbeat one more time. Turn your attention to the screen. Patricia retrieves her nurse's stethoscope. This goes around your ears like that. I cleaned it, okay? <laughs> Tell me if you can hear it. It's so strong. Oh, yeah. She is very strong. I want him to you, too. It is the sound of life itself. It is Taylor's gift. I am so sorry. And I thank you at the same time. I'm so glad you're good. Tara and Todd heard the heart of their daughter. They heard their daughter's heart. The heart was in a new body. The heart was pulsating in a new system bringing life to a different person. But did they not hear the heart of their daughter? The 
The miracle of regeneration, friends, is this. That God places His heart within you. And when God hears your heart, God hears Jesus. When you gave your heart to Christ, Christ gave His heart to you. And you can make discoveries like the Apostle Paul who said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives where? In me. You see, Paul sensed not just the philosophy of Christ in his life, not just the teachings of Christ in his memory, but Paul sensed the very living, pulsating, life-giving presence of Jesus Christ in his life. This is the promise of Christ. Folks, I would say this is the gospel in the nutshell. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your mind becomes the mind of Christ. God's dream isn't just to get you to heaven. God's dream is to get heaven inside of you. Now, can I confess something? For many years I missed this truth. Many years. I understood all the other prepositions. I knew that Christ was with me. I really believed that Christ was for me. I believed that Christ was beneath me, that Christ was above me, that Christ was behind me, that Christ was ahead of me. But somehow I just didn't. I was well into my 30s. I'd been following Christ for 25 years. I, I had already become a, gone through seminary and been a missionary. I was serving in this very congregation. And, but I can, I can take you to the day and I can show you the notes in my journal when I realize Christ is inside me. He's inside me. What a phenomenal discovery. I'm not just a follower of Christ. I'm a bearer of Christ. I encase Christ. He's placed his heart inside of me. What hope this brings. Because there are certain challenges I cannot face. But Christ can and he lives inside me. There are some people I have a hard time forgiving. But Christ can forgive them and he lives inside me. There are some challenges I have. There are some decisions I have to make. They seem like impossible decisions. They are to me, but not to Christ. And guess what? He lives inside me. This is the drumbeat of hope that we find in the Scriptures. For example, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. The old things have passed away. Well, look at that. The old Max passed away. That heart has been taken out and the new heart has been placed in. When God sees you, if you are in Christ, God sees his son. He hears the heartbeat of his son. The old you was crucified with Christ. The new you has been raised with Christ and seated with him right now, seated with him in the heavenlies. God raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. 
because we are united with Christ Jesus. We find these thoughts difficult because of the time zone difference between earth and heaven. But you see, God is not limited by our time sequence. He can do anything at any time, and it is as it always will be. And so he has already placed you in the heavenlies. He's already placed you in the heavenly realms. When he hears you, he hears the heart of Jesus. When he sees you, he sees you as a citizen of heaven. And when he talks to you, he calls you names like holy and blameless. Look at this. He has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. How in the world can something like that be said about you? How in the world can something be said like that about me? I wake up some days in a bad mood. I wake up snapping at things. How can God look at me? How can God look at you and say, you are holy you are blameless. You are without fault. How in the world can this happen? Well, it happens through something that we call the grace of God. And it stacks up like this. God gifts this to us. It is a gift. It is not anything you earn. And since it's not anything you earn, it's not anything you can lose. It's a gift that comes from Him. It is given by God, granted to you, bequeathed. To you. you are the beneficiary of his kindness. And he has accomplished this legally in the judicial system of heaven in the sense that he has redeemed you publicly, not quietly in the corner, but publicly where he has bought you, redeemed you with the blood of Christ. And because of the gift and because of the redemption, you are now accepted, accepted in the heavenlies accepted domestically in that you have been adopted, accepted legally in that you have been acquitted. You've received the gift, you have been redeemed, you have been moved into a place of acceptance in the heavenlies, and because of this, you can now, by God's grace, call yourself a Christ-ian. You are a Christ-ian. You are a walking christ Christ is living inside you. He is changing you. He is working inside you. And the miracle of regeneration has already taken place. And for this reason, the accuser cannot condemn you. Why? What case can the accuser make against Christ? What accusation can the Satan make against Jesus Christ? Satan is speechless as he tries to accuse you. There's nothing he can say because he stands up to speak against you and he sees the heart of Jesus Christ, holy and pure and blameless, and his words sputter and fall like an untied balloon. There is nothing that he can say about you. Or as the scripture says, who can accuse the people God has chosen? No one. Why? Because God is the one who makes them right. Who can say God's people are guilty? No one. Because Christ died, because he was also raised, and now he is on God's right hand, God's right side, begging God for us. Remember the woman in adultery? Jesus stooped, Jesus stood, Jesus spoke. In your case, what did Jesus do? He died, and then he rose, and now he speaks. He did the same thing for you. 
He placed his heart within you. He speaks on your behalf. He lives inside you. And you are beyond accusation. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, if I have the heart of Christ, then why do I still have my bad habits? If Jesus' spirit lives within me, why does anxiety still hound me? If Christ lives in me, why don't I live more like Christ? Here's the answer. Transplants take time. Transplants take time. Patricia Winters has to take time to get accustomed to her new heart. But just because it takes time, that doesn't mean the transplant has not occurred. Right? It just takes time. Listen, friend, it's going to work. It's going to work. Because it's not up to you and it's not up to me. But it's up to him. And he has made you a promise. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. It's not up to you. It's up to him. And he will carry it on to completion. Will you struggle in the meantime? Of course you will. Will you stumble? Absolutely. But are your struggles and are your stumbles an indication of God's condemnation? Absolutely not. Please, hear that. Absolutely not. God will correct you. God will convict me. But will God condemn us? No. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. None at all. That will not happen. So now you know what to say to the accuser. Wasn't this the message that Jesus gave the woman? He said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Wouldn't you love to have been there that morning? And she looked around and said, no. She looks around and all she sees are a bunch of rocks on the ground. They've turned and they've left. And then Jesus said, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. He didn't say go and sin no more and maybe I won't condemn you. He placed her in a place of grace beyond condemnation and said, now let's grow together. Let's grow together. And that's what he says to you and that's what he says to me. And that's what you can say to the old snake, the old accuser, the old devil. Even today when those voices of accusation come, now you know what to say. You can say, you know what? Jesus stooped for me. Jesus stood for me. Jesus speaks for me. And besides, he's given me a brand new heart. And once you say that to Satan, he won't stay around to listen twice.